Uh, we are uh, this morning continuing in our sermon series, uh, as Dave just prayed about, uh, going through the book of Genesis. And uh, that we, we've, as you've noticed, we've engaged at a very breakneck speed. Started in early November, and here we are three months later, and we barely made it through two chapters. Well, you knew we would eventually have to get there, so here we are. We are entering chapter 3 of Genesis. Will you follow along now as I read? I'm just going to read the first yep, nine verses this morning from chapter 3 uh, of Genesis. This is God's holy word. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it, took, took of its fruit, and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? We'll end the reading of God's word right there. Will you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, we ask now that we, as we come into this place, that you would, by your spirit, meet with us. However we have found our way here, whether this is simply rote habit, or whether we have come with enthusiasm, whether we have come with sorrow, joy, Belief, doubts, anger, however we find ourselves this morning, Jesus, we pray that you would meet with us. Demonstrate to us by even these words that were written thousands of years ago, your great love for us, even in this chapter, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Things are about to get dark. The picture Genesis had painted for us up to this point has been spectacular, astonishing. (laughs) And though we certainly could have said a lot more 
than we did, we intentionally took our time through the first two chapters. We wanted to emphasize that what God created, Yahweh's world, is good. He liked it when he first made it. And he said as much multiple times. The gospel writer John says he loves it even now. And that is even why he sent his son, Jesus. And is currently overseeing a cosmic restoration project that was launched with the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. However, Paul says something fascinating in Romans 8. There we read that creation itself is currently groaning as a reaction to the fact that it was subjected to futility, as Paul says. And so Jesus himself says in Revelation, not, I'm going to ignore the groaning of creation. And I'm going to throw the world into the trash. I'm going to start something completely different and something else. Rather, Jesus says, I am making all things new. Genesis 3, this passage, gives us the background on why all of that was necessary in the first place. And so we enter in, even if with fear and trepidation. Our passage opens by both introducing us to a vile and malicious antagonist to our good creator, while at the same time illustrating how temptation and the lure to do anything that is other than our good creator's design for our lives actually works. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, pause right there, already we have questions. <laughs> Lots of questions. Who is this serpent? <laughs> How is a serpent even talking? Is this serpent acting on its own or is it a, possibly a prop or a puppet for something else? The other doesn't tell us details. And so as 21st century readers of this text, we must be humble enough to assume that the main point of this passage is not a full-blown modern-day scientific explanation of what's happening here in the garden. For the original audience, it must have been sufficient enough to simply understand that something is very much not right in this picture. Something is off, big time. See, no one in the ancient Near Eastern world would have thought that people ordinarily walked around talking with snakes. <laughs> and so it would have been safe to assume by the original audience that this snake was in fact not acting on its own. He must be the mouthpiece of someone or something evil behind it that is now coming to threaten the goodness and order of God's creation. In fact, later biblical authors will refer to this thing as the ancient serpent, the Satan. But here's the thing. If you and I listen carefully, we will actually hear and observe a series of events that sounds all too familiar to our own daily lives. 
and the inclinations we have toward and the temptation to do anything that breaks God's commands and that treats others or ourselves as anything less than the full image bearers of God that we were created to be. The first thing we see here in the garden about how temptation works is that all temptation to sin is primarily at its essence an attack on God's good character. Ordinarily, temptation does not win out by simply enticing us immediately to simply outrightly and openly rebel against God and engage in dehumanizing and self-sabotaging activity, whatever it is. No, temptation, the tempter must first demonstrate that whatever law or command or divine exhortation we would be breaking by engaging in that activity is simply proof that God is not trustworthy. That is, he is not worthy of your trust, of my trust, and faithful obedience to his word. See, the tempter or temptation doesn't simply come initially and make a brazen in-your-face claim. Rather, he starts much more subtly. Temptation starts by chipping away at God's own credibility as one who can be trusted with our full obedience and allegiance. Notice how he starts a simple question. Or is it a simple question? Did God actually say? See, the addition of actually there to the question actually exposes the motive behind it. God actually said, what? (laughs) You have to be kidding me. And so it sounds like a simple question at first glance is actually a veiled, dogmatic, accusatory assertion about God's very character. But furthermore, in this question, the tempter significantly minimizes the extensiveness of the goodness of God's kindness by asking if God had actually prohibited this first couple from eating from any and every tree... He is actually charging God with a type of cosmic stinginess. When in reality, God had actually said, You may surely eat. You may freely eat from every tree in the garden except for one. Our enemy does not play fair, (laughs) sin never plays fair. But that's not the tempter's only tactic. You see, he also diminishes and minimizes the relational aspect of our obedience to God. He does his best to cause Eve to forget the covenant relationship she has already been given and has and has enjoyed with the generous creator of her and of all that is good. How does he do this? (laughs) He simply drops the covenant name for God. 
Since the narrator introduced God's covenant name, Yahweh, at the beginning of chapter 2, as he was about to explain the details of the creation of our first human parents, that was the only way that God had been referred to. Yahweh. Up to the very first part of verse 1 of chapter 3. Until the serpent opens his mouth. And in the second part of verse 1 says, Not... Did your covenant-keeping faithful God, Yahweh, say, but simply, did God say? Sin gets a greater foothold in our hearts and our minds when it begins to blur the relational aspect of our obedience to God. We begin to entertain the lie that when God issues a command, he's not acting out of love as our divine covenantal advocate, (laughs) but out of maliciousness as our cosmic adversary. It's the lie you and I also begin to engage when we simply start to entertain temptation. That somehow God's commands to us are completely unrelated to our relational connection to our God. But here's the the truth. The reality is God's laws, Yahweh's laws are not arbitrary. Yahweh's laws are never impersonal. They're never ends in themselves, as if God just sort of came up with a random set of instructions and said, do this simply because I said so. As if it's simply a divine power play to keep us busy and keep us in line. But that's exactly what is up for grabs in our hearts and our minds anytime you and I are confronted in Scripture with anything that challenges the way we think we know what is best for me and how to live my life. In that moment, we are challenged to make a faith decision about who we will trust. Is God, as my faithful, covenant-keeping God, trustworthy even here? (laughs) Do I believe that he has proven that in all things he is looking out for my best interest as one that he created in his image, even as hard as it seems to me to follow him in this particular area of my life? It's why scripture itself elsewhere often describes sin and its consequences in relational terms. Elsewhere, God himself frames and characterizes his people's waywardness and sin as faithlessness, as breach of covenant commitment, as betrayal, as desertion, even as adultery and even as whoring. All of these are relational ways of describing our sin and our rebellion from God. You see, at its core, the true essence of our waywardness, therefore, is the belief that this, whatever this is, and however it infringes on God's laws, might bring me comfort in some way that God himself is holding out on me. Whether God is trustworthy to give me what I need to be a fully satisfied, true 
human being created in his image comes into question. And it is at this point that we risk losing sight of and forgetting his genuine love for us and exchange it for a belief that he is simply desiring to keep us from joy. Because before we're ever tempted to actually do something contrary to God's word, we are first tempted to believe something that is contrary to God's word. That God is not trustworthy. So how does Eve respond to this vile, evil, twisted scheme by the enemy of our good creator? Verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Since the original audience would have heard all of Genesis, it was an oral audience, and likely in one setting, and not broken up every few verses from week to week that requires three months just to get through two chapters. Even the youngest child would have immediately noticed that there's an addition here to God's initial command. God never said, you may not touch it. But that is how you and I further make God out to be a cosmic killjoy by adding or misconstruing or misinterpreting or misunderstanding his very plain words. When we do that, we don't simply distort his words. We further distort his very character in our minds. And now the tempter has Eve at this point in his trap. (laughs) And she has now been made ready to now receive the all-out frontal assault and accusation that's about to come. Verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the serpent boldly and brazenly charges God with lying. That, in fact, is where the tempter was intending to go all along from the very beginning, though he didn't start there. That would not have been an effective tactic. But the reality is, no embezzler simply wakes up one morning, turns on his computer, and notices a ballooned bank account and wonders how the money got there. Instead, there were smaller decisions made along the way that made indulging in increasingly more and more detrimental and harmful activity easier and easier. And so, my friends, since temptation's MO is to undermine God's character, one of the greatest defenses to the lure of sin is by remembering God's good faithfulness and rehearsing God's good faithfulness and doing it 
regularly. And availing ourselves to the many ways that God chooses providentially to commandeer, to remind us of his faithfulness and even communicate his grace to us. It's why we come here every Sunday morning and it's why it's important to weekly be part of this corporate reminder and celebration of God's faithfulness. It's why he gives us this meal, this supper that we will enjoy and celebrate together in a few moments. And Jesus himself even encourages us to participate often because we forget. (laughs) It's also why you will hear more and more about our city groups here at New City and the importance of being in fellowship with others who, among other things, are there to remind each other of God's faithfulness. It's necessary and essential. Well, the saying goes that it's always darkest before the dawn. I don't know if that's true or not, but it preaches well. It's about to get darker. Verse 6. When she saw that it was good for food... And a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took the fruit and ate, and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, first of all, I've got a question for Adam. What were you doing? (laughs) Tech says he was with her. We don't know how long. But why didn't he step in and defend his wife's innocence and fight off the tempter? Again, no answers. This is just the author's account of what happened. (laughs) And so whereas Eve was deceived into rebelling, bad enough, Adam goes full in with full understanding and full rebellion, knowing exactly what the clear command of Yahweh was. He was not deceived. (laughs) And verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their eyes were open, but they didn't see better. (laughs) It actually made their vision worse. You see, it's not that they didn't notice that they were naked before. It's just that now they can't handle the exposure of being that fully known by another human being. Walls go up. They take cover. Sin's entrance into God's good cosmos immediately causes relational fracturing and distance. And the very last thing we were told about the state of things, if you recall from chapter 2, the last thing about when God created, completed his work of creating his image bearers was that they were naked and not afraid, and that was the very first aspect of their humanity that is now ruined. And so like we said last week, we all still ultimately long to be known and still fully loved. But this side of Genesis 3... We now feel like the only way we can be truly accepted or at least perhaps tolerated by other human beings is if we're not fully known. But notice their reaction and our reaction is not only to hide from each other. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
Perhaps the cool of the day was a daily running appointment with the couple and God. <laughs> but not this day. When they hear him coming on this day, they run. They hide. And now sin has fully and completely warped even their sense of all reality. And they actually think that they can hide from God the same way that they have covered up themselves to hide from each other. And that is the further lie that we believe in our sin. We become convinced that isolation from each other and from God himself is the safest place for us when we blow it. When we fail. And so it's why we immediately go to defending ourselves. (laughs) Why we go to minimizing the hurt that we have done to others. It's why we are quick to point out the issues in others. It's our way of hiding. And it feels much safer to hide than to honestly come clean. But that, my friends, is the place where we will only suffer further disintegration as human beings if we stay there. The psalmist in Psalm 32 said he could feel it in his bones. He says, when I kept silent, my own bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Hiding is always a bad idea. And because the Bible teaches where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I would even suggest the ways we hide in reaction to our failures is actually worse than the waywardness itself because it continues to keep us from the only one who can actually do anything about our broken and disgraced situation. Listen to God's response. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man. Notice the author uses the covenantal name, the Lord God, Yahweh, as the one who called. The human couple had abandoned their covenantal connection with their creator and even turned it into an adversarial relationship in their minds. And yet God's posture towards his children did not and does not change. And so it's why the Apostle John can actually write that when we honestly do business with others and with God, that is when we confess our sins, it's actually out of his faithfulness. It's actually out of his justice that he doesn't abandon us, but that he forgives us. And so the narrator continues, the Lord God said to him, where are you? Where are you? not a geographical question (laughs) and furthermore that that my friends is a far different question than what many of us if not most of us would have expected from God because of how others have responded to us when we blew it in the past we are more used to hearing the question how could you how could you that's not God's question here God asks a question here 
as a gentle father's seeking out his wayward child and offering an opportunity to come clean and to come back into his saving, forgiving arms. It's the same posture as the good shepherd that Jesus speaks about, who when he had a hundred sheep and one ran off, he could not sleep until he found that one stray. Most of us do not have this type of relational experience with human, other human beings, though. And so we can't imagine it possibly happening with God. I have a friend who pastors a church, a young church in downtown Milwaukee. And he recently shared a story with me about a young man he met a few years ago when he and his church members were out handing out water bottles on the streets, having conversations with folks. I guess it must have been a really hot Milwaukee summer day, as if Milwaukee knows hot summer days. The guy asked what they were doing. <laughs> and he even asked if he could help. And at, and at the end of the day, the pastor, my pastor friend told him, hey, if you ever are looking for a meal on a Sunday morning, you're welcome to come to our church. We always share a breakfast together as a congregation right before we have a worship service. After that conversation, he didn't see the young man for some time until one day he showed up with to-go boxes in hand. He would pack up a meal into his to-go boxes and take it home. He started doing that until one day he actually showed up without his to-go boxes and actually sat down and stayed and shared a meal with some of the people of the congregation and then left. He started doing that. Until one day, not only did he stay for the meal, he also stayed for the worship service. He started doing that. Eventually, this young man came to faith in Jesus Christ. Over the course of many, many months, as this congregation simply welcomed him each and every week and continued to be a community of light pointing to the gospel for this young man. And then all of a sudden, this young man disappeared. And so the pastor, as an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, went looking for him and eventually found him. And this is what the young man told him. He said, yeah, I, I figured I had one chance with God, and I blew it. As far as he was concerned, that was it. The pastor then had the glorious opportunity to expand this young man's understanding and perspective <laughs> of who his God truly was not just his initiating character of come to me and I will forgive you and that will our relationship will remain intact as long as you don't ever stray but also when you do go astray I will come looking for you I will come for you you mean that much to me I will not simply let you go I pay too high of a price to just forget about you 
Even if I had 99 others, I'm coming for you because that's the kind of covenant-keeping God that I am. And when you are faithless, I will still remain faithful. Friends, as I close, the same fuel that helps empower us to resist temptation, that is be constantly reminding ourselves of the goodness of God's character and his trustworthiness, even as our lawgiver, though he's never simply a lawgiver, is the same fuel that helps us come back to preach to ourselves that because of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he is also a merciful, gracious, and generously forgiving God. And so whether we are facing temptation this morning or trying to figure out how to come back, it all comes down to what you and I believe about the character of God. What will you believe this morning about the character of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we could not have imagined, have dreamed up this type of a redemptive story that your entire scripture reveals about who you are. It must be proof (laughs) that no human being came up with this on their own. We are not used to being in relationship with anyone (laughs) where we see this type of welcome and passion about maintaining and supporting and keeping this type of generous, kind relationship with us. So Jesus, for those of us that are here this morning and are your followers, we celebrate once again and anew the beauty and the wonder of your grace for what you have done on our behalf. And even as we continue to endeavor to follow you as your disciples and go to places often that we are not so sure that's what's best for us, may we be reminded once again that Jesus, you are worthy to be trusted to guide and to lead because no greater love has anyone than to lay down their life for their friend. And that is exactly, Jesus, what you have demonstrated and shown to us. If we are here this morning and we have not yet fully embraced you by faith and know you in this way, I pray, Father, that perhaps even this morning for the very first time, your Holy Spirit would reveal to us so definitively how great And loud is your calling on our life that you would go out of your way to come after us. That it is no accident that we're even here this morning. But all of this has been working in part of your providence in order that we might finally know how great and how deep is our Father's love for us. Jesus, help us wherever we are this morning. 
to believe this once again, or perhaps even for the first time we pray. For your sake, amen.